0: You're listening to Eric Rogel Talks with Warriors, Lovers, Kings, and Heroes, where you'll hear real stories of the journey to modern manhood, told by the men who lived them. Raw, real, and 100% unapologetic. And now,
1: here is your host, Eric Rogel. Hey, this is Eric Rogel, and thanks for joining me on Warriors, Lovers, Kings, and Heroes. This is where each week you're going to hear real stories of the journey to modern manhood told by the men who live them. And I've got another great story for you today. And today's story is not only inspiring for the journey my guest took, a journey from living in poverty on some of the most dangerous streets in the country where he was taken off the path to a life of violence and crime, ending up playing in the NFL for the Baltimore Ravens because that story in and of itself is inspiring enough. It's one of survival and rescue and redemption, being mentored by strong men of all types who recognized his greatness and guided him on a path to success. But it's also about what he did after his football career ended that shows what it is to be a hero, to be truly heroic. So my guest... Today is Tyrus McLeod and his name may not be familiar to you unless you're a diehard Ravens fan because Tyrus spent his entire career with the Ravens as a backup linebacker to the great Ray Lewis, which means he saw very little playing time. Now he's going to tell you about his years with Ray and what he learned from him, but before he got to the NFL, McLeod believed he would just follow in his older brother's footsteps and end up in prison. Because McLeod grew up in what he describes as one of the worst zip codes in the country. He's one of seven brothers and sisters raised by a single mom. The, uh, the father of McLeod's three older siblings was murdered. Then his own father went to prison. And when he was 11, his mother's third husband drank himself to death. So McLeod had to survive on the streets however he could. And his size allowed him to bully and shake down his classmates and other kids on the streets for money just so he could eat. It was a life he said was intense, but one he just saw as normal. Fortunately for McLeod, some strong men entered his life. The first was an unlikely mentor. It was his older brother who was serving time in prison. And you're going to hear how he guided McLeod away from making the same mistakes he had made and living a life of crime. Now, the others were his football coaches who saw in him a rare talent and took him off the streets and onto the field, giving him an outlet for his rage and a way to a better life. And now with his NFL career behind him, McLeod has dedicated his life to helping other young men from his old neighborhood get off those same streets and guide them to a better life. So I asked McLeod how living on the streets, fighting for survival every day could be seen as normal.
2: Yeah, it felt normal because um every day you kind of run for your life. Um, uh, you know, I remember uh know, our daily hustle, my sister and I, uh, who was closer to me, she's about a year older than me, uh, would use the men that would drink a lot in the neighborhood who would hustle for money. So she would, you know, sit on their laps and let them like touch her. And so it would be like while well, I kinda like take money out of the ashtrays or out of their pockets and you know, we didn't realize that, you know, we got caught with somebody to really, to really take our life or try to hurt us and harm us. Sure. And yeah, it was just one of the things, those games that we
1: played, we played with our lives. Wow. And that was normal for, for you. Like That was yeah, I mean, it was, friends, that was normal Your family day. was doing it. This was just the way it was.
2: Yeah, that's just the way it was. We always looked for a way to try to get extra dollars so we could eat or get some clothes or something. And it was always within that circle of that community a way to hustle.
1: I wanted to know about McLeod's family, his brothers and sisters, and how they stuck together to survive.
2: Well, my oldest brother uh was you know, he, he was like eight years older than I was. Um he ended up going to prison uh about when I was about maybe twelve or thirteen. Um but he was he was a he was a drug guy in the streets, you know. Not only did he smoke drugs, but he hustled people for drugs as well. Uh, you know, my sisters, like I told you, they, you know, they were just kind of the toys in the neighborhood, the sexual toys uh in the neighborhood. And then my older brother, you know, no nobody really never tried to support each other or encourage each other. It was just a, a point to where you had to use what you thought was a gift to get ahead. And it was like everybody for themselves, is what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, it was it was everybody for themselves. And that was the course that I was on that was um, scary uh, once I kind of hit about that age of 15
1: uh, age. Yeah, so that's that's how you basically came up. It was, you know, I've got to look out for me. No one else is looking out for me. I've got to get everything on my own. Is that? Yeah,
2: that was it. It It was how do I, you know, fill my belly with the next meal or
1: look for the next thrill. It was just getting to the next moment. So living moment to moment to moment, how am I going to get the next? Correct. Yeah. Where's mom during all this? Were you getting anything at home? I mean, even love, support, anything? Or, you know, what was going on there?
2: Nah, well, the love we were getting was that she was trying her best to make sure the ones that were home consistently had a meal. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Uh, She was trying her best to make sure we had a roof over our head, which was the main thing that she did. She always said, you know, my job is to provide you a place to sleep and a roof over your head, and that's the best that she felt she could do, and that's what she did. Um, It wasn't any uh, encouragement as as to, hey, you know, this is what we need to do every day, this is how I'm going to tell you to go to school, this is how you should study, this is how you should treat people, talk, it wasn't that, it was more, you know, I'm providing, I'm working, and I'm giving you a place to stay, and so
1: with that, she would hope that we would figure it out.
2: As yeah, everything else up. is your
1: responsibility, right? She wanted right. you to figure it out, right? How did that feel when you were going through that? You know, you said earlier where you grew up seemed kind of normal, but did that seem like a normal family life as well?
2: No, it, it didn't seem normal. Uh, it was normal for us, but when I go to my friends' house that have parents that actually try to raise them and be, mm-hmm. uh, you know, engaging with them, um, I, I felt the difference. I saw the difference with those kids than I saw with me. I was more the angry. Want to be bully type, Mm. and they were more of the helpful, want to be supportive type kids. And it was just how we were being raised. Yeah. So you so you were a bully, you were angry
1: when you were younger.
2: Yeah. And I think a lot of it came from what I saw and what I was going through and what I didn't have. And I was jealous that other kids had. And it wasn't so much material, it was more about
1: relationships. Tell me about that.
2: Yeah. I mean, when you see a mother walks a son bus stop and hug and kiss on them or you know somebody's there to pick them up when the bus uh, arrives at the bus stop or when you see a kid with a bag of lunch you know I, I i got upset at any little thing that i see that somebody had support uh you right. know and so that that it, it frustrated me because i didn't have mom making lunch i didn't have anybody walking to the bus stop i didn't have anybody hugging on me
1: kissing me and wishing a good day so it just made me angry so it was the jealousy, really, of seeing others that had that, and it's what you wanted to have yourself. Is that what that's
2: Exactly. Yeah, it was. It was just
1: jealousy, right. So you, so you were acting out, angry, bullying, all of that?
2: Yeah, yeah. Every time I did, I acted out. I mean, I
1: stayed in fights. I stayed in you know,
2: challenging people, every little thing, you know. Yeah. feel bad about it today. Sometimes I see people that I uh, will say, hey, you know, you got to have my $2 tomorrow. I better have my $5 by Friday, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and, I, I, you know, it hurts when I see even at this age uh, people that I, you know, did that with.
1: Yeah. Do they ever say anything to you when you run into them?
2: Yeah. Yeah. They, they say they try and joke about it, but I know it affected them. Just as much as it affected me uh, because, you know, here I am. I mean, i 45 years old and I got guilt as a 15-year-old that's, as, you know, that's scaring the heck
1: out of somebody. Right. Um, 30 years later, you're still carrying that. I'm still carrying it. Right. Hmm. McLeod is still carrying that and a number of tragedies and traumas that he endured as a kid, but rather than letting them take him down, he uses them as motivation to help others who grew up like he did. So I asked him to tell me about these traumas.
0: Yeah. I, I, I
2: you know, I guess it was all over the place with trauma. Um, one of the things I remember vividly is my uncle dying from a uh, AIDS. I was about 14 years old and, um, I've 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 watch, I've seen people die in my neighborhood, you know, cause you get murdered or something like that or a fight. But I didn't see anybody die from a sickness. That was to watch him like deteriorate, um, mm-hmm. and 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 so that was one of the things when AIDS played our community uh, that really hurt my grandmother. Uh, my brother going to prison was actually a good thing for both of us because he was more like my father uh, figure. Um, mm-hmm. He made sure that I. He ran me out of the streets when I even tried to fight him. Um, but most importantly, he was in prison. He was he was the person that mentored me while he was in prison. And it wasn't a mentor in a way of a spiritual sense. It was more of telling me what's going on while he was in prison. With yeah. the fights, the murders, the rapings and all that. Yeah. And uh, uh, challenging me to do the right thing and not follow his path. So
1: how old were you when this was going on?
2: This was, I was about, about 15 years old and um you know he could call me and say hey look man i'm about to do 100 push-ups i need you to get down and do 100 push-ups with me so right there on the phone we'll do 100 150 push-ups yeah. he'll get up and i can hear him breathing hard and he's trying to catch his breath and he's also telling me on you know, the next stall over you know two guys are going at it right now fighting another guy's about to plot on another guy and so it was it was literally shaping me to say hey my brother says no picnicking there's no it's not a place that you want to be
1: so he inspired me through those times. Yeah." Wow. But now, did he like course. that with you beforehand? Was he was he kind of a mentor before he went into prison, or? No,
2: no, he was far from that. Um, he 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 was the guy that you know I would go out bully somebody, or if I get in a fight and three guys wanted to jump me, you know my brother was there to help, got he my back. He would fight for me. Um, my brother was, you know, he made sure that if I got too late, I went home, made sure I took a bath, I had something to eat once in a while but it was more about survival when he was on the street.
1: Yeah. And then once he got to prison, so he had a, like, kind of a, almost an awakening when he got to prison about what he'd done with his life, and it was more, I don't want you to do this.
2: Yeah, when he got to prison, um, it, it was, it, it was an eye-opener for him. And I didn't realize how much he loved me uh, mm-hmm. because, you know, we didn't share love. We didn't share those kind of words. We didn't share inspiration. But he really made it a point to talk to me while he was in prison. That
1: yeah. changed my life. Sure, and 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 is that what kept you out of prison yourself?
2: Yeah, it kept me. It kept me, it moved me towards sports. It moved me towards something productive. Um, I wasn't an academic kid. In fact, I was labeled, um, you know, slow learning disability.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and I think it was just because we didn't have educational resources. It wasn't that I wasn't smart. I just was lazy. Right. Um, but um, so I went towards sports because it was something that I felt I was a physical guy that I'd be good at. I never liked football, but I did it because of the fact of I wanted to do something productive. And that's what he was
1: challenging me to do. And you, so your brother was challenging you to, to, to play football? Yeah, my brother was
2: challenging me to play football, right. He challenged oh. me to do it, to get out of the streets, to go sign up and play. I went out, and I played. Like uh, right? so I didn't like it, but it felt good to hit people. Mm. It felt good to be around people that gives you support for being good. And so I, I used the game in that way.
1: So you were able to not only get, you know, have a, have a, I'll say, positive outlet for that anger and frustration. Like you said, it was good to hit people, but it was in a positive way. You were doing it in a productive way. And you also had that support, mentoring, coaching direction that you've been looking for. That was the cause of that frustration. Yeah,
2: exactly.
1: Exactly. And I
2: got, I got more of it through the coaches, mm-hmm. you know. Tell me so about I, that. I, yeah, I the coaches, um, they knew that uh that I was a kid after, you know, I didn't have a ride home at practice. They I couldn't afford cliques. I couldn't afford the resources to play football. And uh when they saw where I live and when they take me home, uh, you know, their hearts kinda went out towards me because they saw the potential, mm-hmm. but they, they, they didn't know how long it would last because of what the lack of resources. And so they began to encourage me, but also support me to make sure I had what I needed to play the game and also be successful in academics,
1: you know, uh, eligible enough to play. Yeah. So they, so they really kind of, um, got behind you in all of this.
2: Yeah. They got behind me. Um, yeah, you know, I didn't see the potential, but they saw, they saw me going to college. They saw me going to NFL. mm -hmm. You know, I'm just a, a normal kid coming from the neighborhood thinking, I'm, yeah, I didn't know what I,
1: the talent I had, no. Sure. Did you believe them, and what did you think they were doing when they were doing this for you? I mean, after having no support, no nothing, mm-hmm. to go towards these men coming into your lives and giving you all of this support, telling you that they believe in your potential, that you could go pro doing this, what's going on in your head? And you were like, how old are you? Are you still like 15, 16 at this yeah,
2: time? At this point, like you know, 6, 17, 16, 17, somewhere like my junior year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what was going on in my head was that you know, basically, you know, you know, in my neighborhood, you know, it's it's, it's white guys. My mm-hmm. neighborhood, you know, if you you know, white. My neighborhood, you're buying drugs. They the police, and so uh, here I am being busted in a suburban neighborhood, Nova High School, out of Pompano, and I got these uh, these white gentlemen that are supporting me, helping me. My thought process was they're just using me right. to win football game. That that was my thought process, and um, yeah. I didn't realize. Um, that they actually was sharing real love until my brother got out of prison. And um, my dad then came back to my life because I was doing really good in football. And he wanted me to transfer to uh, Ely High School, which was his high school. Right. Uh, And and so and my brother. Ely has a really good
1: football program, don't they? Yeah, yeah. He was a really good
2: football program. And and my brother got out. um, My mom, my brother told my father that I was going to stay at Nova, that I wasn't going anywhere. Because my brother knew I had the support from the coaches and the staff and all that stuff, and so um, yeah, it was just you know I I realized then that the coaches had my best interest.
1: Again, McLeod's older brother stepped in to guide him to make sure they did have his best interests at heart. And when McLeod got caught stealing, it was his coaches this time who stepped in to make sure that this didn't derail his future.
2: I was actually going to get expelled for uh, stealing. and um, the coach then had talked to me about playing sports. I didn't want to play sports. So they gave me ultimatum. He said, listen, I, I, can, I can talk him down from expelling you,
0: mm-hmm. but you
2: got to get active and you got to do the right thing. And, I, and all I can hear is my brother in my, my head telling me, see, I told you, you got to get active. You got to do the right
1: thing. <laughs> what do you think would have happened if your brother hadn't intervened and gotten into your life and if these coach if you hadn't gotten into NOVA and these coaches hadn't given you the support that um, that they gave you. Mm. Oh man, that's scary to think about.
2: I I, I don't know what would happen in my life. I I, I could I almost get emotional thinking about what would have happened. Yeah. Um, I, I I just
1: wouldn't be here talking to you. I know that. Yeah. Would you have gone down the same road as your brother, even though he was, you know?
2: Yeah, yeah. I went down the same road. As my brother prison. I feel like my uncle died of AIDS. I probably uh, uh alcoholic drugs, I don't
0: I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: It's a whole different path, right?
0: Yeah, it's a whole whole different whole different path. And that
2: support you get from people um help change the lives of thousands. You never know how far your support goes.
1: Right, because once they change your life, you've been now on a path to change other lives, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I give it to my high school head coach all the time, Willie Darrow. He lives up in uh, Georgia now. He's retired. And uh, he called me his oldest son because I was the first one that went to college. He was the first year head coach when I started playing. Oh, no kidding. So we started out together. He said probably about maybe hundreds of guys in college after that. Long story short, he calls me the oldest son, but um, I'm telling him, man, you don't know how many kids you affected through me by helping me because of what I do in mentoring and prison and what I've done through volunteer work uh, was all because of what he did for me. So
1: you're passing that on, right? You're yeah. passing that forward. Right. Yeah, beautiful. That impact is amazing, isn't it? No, oh, big time, yeah. Makes so life it, worth living, yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. Absolutely agree. That's the only yeah. way. Yeah. Um, so now you're, you're in high school, you only playing football for two years, and then you get recruited by colleges. What was your feeling then? I mean, is that when you started to realize, hey, maybe these guys were right? I, I have a future in this.
2: Yeah, um, that's exactly that's, that's what it was. Um, I, I didn't know I had a future in it um, until I started getting recruited. And then I started realizing that's what my coach saw on me. He saw mm-hmm. something special. And so um, that was a game changer for me. When the college scouts told me that they think my talent
0: is really good. Had that feel? Like
2: validation
1: uh, on that.
0: Yeah, that was, that felt good. It felt
2: good. It felt real good. It felt, it felt like um I had some sense of worth, of purpose, um
1: which I never felt I had before. But it felt yeah. that good. Even though the coaches had been telling you that, you still didn't believe them, right? Because you thought they just wanted you to win games. They yeah. You were know, yeah. thinking win games, but now you're seeing that they were telling you the truth.
2: Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I, I just really somehow, in my heart of hearts, thought maybe it was still to their benefit but when I got on the plane to go to Louisville or Michigan and visit these colleges, I was like, "This is really real." And
1: how did that change your attitude as a
2: player and as a person? Oh, it changed. I started, I started living like, like, like in fear, almost like you know, uh, you know, when I was growing up, you know, it, you, you had to be, you, you couldn't be afraid to die. You know, I mean, if you live by the gun, you got to die by the gun.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: All right, so, uh, but at this moment, it's like I'm afraid I'm going to die in my sleep. I'm going to miss out on this dream I'm having because life is really starting to turn around for me. Like I can really leave Pompano, go somewhere and see another part of this world
0: was my thought.
1: Yeah. And then you did yeah. that, right? You ended up going to Louisville. Yeah. Yeah. I went to Louisville. Right. Went and Louisville. how was that? Was that like a whole shock for you? Culture shock or. Um...
2: Yeah, it it was, it was different. Uh, I mean, those guys, a lot of those guys got support. You got, you got college kids. I mean, these, these are college kids, you know, it's 50,000 kids at the school. And, uh, They all look like they got money and support and (laughs) family. Right. Uh, You know, coming from this hole in the wall. And he's like, God dang, everybody's smiling and getting happy. You know, and so uh, it was different for me. Uh, It was different.
1: How long did it take you to acclimate to that? Kind of get into the –
2: Well, it was fast. It was fast. What what happened after my freshman year, the last game of the freshman year, I never forget, we had two guys. I'm 18 years old, man. I'm, I just finished my last game, bowl game, in Liberty Bowl. And they just came back to school with two brand new cars, uh, two seniors. And uh, mm-hmm. everybody's running out of the door and They're like, wow, what What would declare a pro? I was like, oh, it's that easy, right? Like, I just played this game with you, like, yeah. <laughs> I just played this football game with you, like, three weeks ago, right? We were in Memphis. Yeah. And you got a brand new car, and you're going pro. And I'm like, this is crazy. So, Right then, I made up my mind, like, you know what? only thing between me and the NFL is hard work. And mm-hmm. so, um, at that moment, I, 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 I told myself, the only way I go back to Pompano is in a body bag. I'm not going back. There's you know, no option to quit. And so, um, that was my mindset. Yeah.
1: That's a great mindset to have, too, right? I mean, you had a goal now. Now you had something to look forward to, and now you actually had a, a purpose and a goal, and that's what you were going to work towards. Right, right. So how was it for the rest of your college career after that? Uh,
2: that was a blur, man. It was just hard work. It was hard work, commitment, sacrifice, man. I just, I didn't, I didn't know what college was like. I didn't have a college party. I didn't know college fraternity. I just woke up every day working hard, man, making sure I'm eligible, studying my uh, classwork. Um, my teammates thought I was insane. Um, <laughs> I just, <Isn't> <laughs> yeah, I just, I just wouldn't stop at the idea of I can make it to the NFL. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you did. Yeah, I did, which was probably the worst day of my life.
1: The worst <laughs> wait, 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 <laughs> Tell me about that. So you get drafted right. and it's the yeah, worst I, day of your life. Worst day of my
2: life, right. Yeah, I get that. Why is that? It was there's some events lead up to that, but I get a call from the Baltimore Ravens on Sunday and they say we're going to draft you with our next pick, right? But I'm getting a call before that, I got a call from New Orleans Saints say we're going to draft you with our next pick. They were right behind the Ravens. Uh-huh. Um, but the Ravens call, I did not want to answer the phone
1: because I'm a middle linebacker.
2: And they had a guy named Ray Lewis. Playing middle linebacker.
1: Never heard of Ray Lewis. Who is he? Ray Lewis is a <laughs> No, home I'm home teasing home. you, brother. I mean, you come on. <laughs> the guy's a legend. He's all-in-favorite.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so, and so I'm like, you just drafted a middle linebacker, man. And I just drafted two other linebackers, Cleo Bollware, James. And I'm saying to myself, this is the worst day of my life, fourth round. Um. <laughs> But it's my fault. I put myself in that position because, uh, like I say, leading up to that combine and the workouts,
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, when I was that guy that got into the car from the agent, he put about thirty thousand in my pocket that January. Um, I went back to that kid that grew up in that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. I went to, you know, partying and thinking I made it, and you know, just getting high and, um. So when it came time to actually work out for pro scouts and do what I need to do, I was number one rated inside linebacker coming into the draft, and I dropped from number one all the way to the fourth round as a draft pick because of that selfishness. Really? So
1: you went and partied and went back to your old ways, and that cost you yeah. four rounds. Yep.
2: Yeah. Four four years of hard work, effort uh, coming out. Number one rated inside linebacker rated in January. Lost my mind uh, between those two three months and yeah lost a lot of stock. yeah what did you
1: learn from that
2: what What are you uh i learned i need help i learned that uh a lot of the things that i dealt with as a kid saw as a kid went through as a young adult um i covered up with football mm-hmm. that mentally i i needed to address those issues and so that that's really why i started living my life understanding that i need to be honest about getting help and did you Yeah, I started on the on the journey. I thought it was gonna happen overnight, Um, and uh, you know, I did. First thing I did was I I thought anybody give your life to Christ, you know, and and magically God will make everything right. And I didn't realize that was a process. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then I decided, y'all get married, Uh, and know that was gonna be a tough process. <laughs> so, you yeah, know, yeah, 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 well, yeah. I didn't know how to treat a woman, uh, you
1: know, treat a kid, you know, and I'm very honest in my life. I bring surprise, yeah, you, had, and, you had no experience in that whatsoever. You had no nah, role models in terms of how to treat a woman, how to be no. a father, how to do any of these things. No, I just thought if I got married, I'd do the right things.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, I'd Oh, so the, the marriage. Way. So once you said I do put the ring on, boom, everything's magic. <laughs> right you know everything you
2: have all the answers yeah i didn't say i do i didn't know where i was going after that (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh yeah so um but that was a process so i just you know went on this journey man trying to figure out you know how can i defeat these demons that are inside of me
0: Mm -hmm.
2: yeah and
1: you're still working on that
2: yeah, still working on it. Oh, uh, it's, it's, it's and I realize it's a lifelong journey. I, Correct. I realize it, and that's what helped free me. Understanding it's a lifelong journey. Uh, that uh, you know, there's truth and grace and mercy and weakness all tied up. It's a big knot,
1: and that's the thing. That's the that's the biggest part of it. Is that when you realize, um, you know, there's no one day I'm gonna wake up and be fixed or be mm-hmm. perfect. And that this is part of the journey for me just to continue to be a better man, right? Right. On and on, learning, experiencing, mm. uh, taking in what I can from other men, and, and just becoming better and better every day.
0: Mm.
2: Yeah, that's it. That's exactly what it is, right? It is, it's, it, you know, I used to beat myself up back then. You know, I beat myself up all the time, but I was beating myself up and I was missing out on inspiring others. Mm. I was missing out on encouraging people, I was missing out on the opportunities I was given to be a blessing, even though I was weak and wanting somebody to be a blessing to me, I was missed out on it. So as I got older, I, I stopped beating myself up, and I realized, you know,
1: it's just not worth it. Mm-hmm. No, it's not. It's not right. worth it, and it's, you know, and, it, and you're just going through what you're going through at that right. moment. Right, at that you, moment, right. And you take that in, and you move forward from that piece. Exactly. When you take the exactly. next one, and you move forward from that exactly you know are no mistakes listen everything that you experienced when you were growing up is who made you the man you are today right right Looking That's back, what it is. you see
2: that now right exactly exactly yep yeah. the, the the bad part of me actually created the good part of me uh, if you want to see
1: that yeah yeah amen I get that absolutely you were able it was the contrast you're able to see who you were before to become mm-hmm. who you are now right yeah. Exactly. So when you were on the Ravens, and listen, you know, like Ray Lewis was, was very well known for being a great mentor and and mm-hmm. and being a you know a leader in that locker room. What was your experience around that with him and with a lot of the other men on the team? I mean, a lot of mentors there. You're getting into the league. You're a rookie. What was that like?
2: Yeah. Uh, well, the NFL is is is, is you know, it's a job, right? So you got these different cultures in the locker room. Mm-hmm. You know, you got some of the husbands some that are uh, believers in, in faith, and some of that are just party animals, and you got some that are really serious about the game, and that's all I do is focus on the game. And so you got that all those cultures mixed in one. Uh, you hmm. know, you know, so, you know, it, you know Ray and I, we, we, we were together a lot because I was a backup.
1: And so, you know, you always
2: got to hang with your backup, right? So, uh, but we were young. I mean, uh, and, and Ray was figuring it out. One thing Ray uh, probably did for me was I never forget, uh, I used to get high a lot, and uh, I won't – I guess I could he, he, he probably made it too. He's used to do it together. But long story short, he, he mentioned something one day. We were sitting in his living room. And he said, listen, we, we got to stop. He said, I feel so much better, man, when I don't do this. Mm-hmm. I feel like I can breathe better. I can run better. But most importantly, man, my mom wants me to stop. My mom wants me to do right. She believed I could be great at this. And then he started, like, talking about his future that he could be this like home playing guy. Yeah, you know, as a backup, I'm sitting there saying yada yada yada, right? On the backup. Right. I don't want to hear that noise anyway, right?
1: <laughs>
2: oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm hoping you get hurt. So yes, get hurt. you get
1: hurt. You leave or you get or you you're you're traded get traded or
2: something, right? Right. So um but that was in, that was inspiring that at I think at time we were probably twenty three years old. Uh mm-hmm. back then. And uh that he had that 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 willpower to just stop. Yeah, and really focus on being great at the game, and so I, a lot of that stuff they come back to me until after I retired. Yeah, when I thought about a lot of the conversations he and I used to have, and I used to always beat myself like, man, I was around so much passion and so much desire, and I didn't want to draw from it at all. Yeah, at all, I completely disregarded it and shut it
1: down. Why do you think you did that? What was the reason for not uh-huh. paying attention to it? For you? Again,
2: goes back to the, that that kid growing up, selfish, angry, mad at the world because things just didn't go my way. You know, when I saw the kid that had the lunchbox or had support and a hug, you know, you know, here I am talking to a guy that was drafted first round, that the coaches love him, they spoil him. So, you know, it, it goes back to just not wanting to support anything that I feel like anybody that got more support has. Yeah, you know, it's selfish, it's jealousy. Yeah. You know, why would, why would I think that? I'm getting paid six figures, right? I'm, I got drafted. I'm on a team. Should be happy. But I'm just, you know, that's just, the culture, man, that I grew up in.
1: Yeah. And again, you were able to take that experience and then turn that into fuel for the rest yeah. of your life, right? Exactly. You're right. Yeah. yeah you
2: helped. Go ahead. No, I said it helped, it helped me see clearly that I, that I needed help. That, and that you know, helped me see clearly, too. And that, that's what helped me try
1: to help others to see that as well. You know what I'm, I'm feeling when you're saying that, too, about you? know you realize you needed help. How hard was it for you to ask for help? Because i got to figure with your upbringing and how, you know, you're in the streets and it's everybody for themselves and it's all about surviving, was asking for help to you a sign of weakness?
2: Yeah, most definitely. Um, you know, I thought that was just a man thing, but it was for me um, asking for help because to ask for help, to me, you got to expose your weakness
1: and mm-hmm. so why you're
2: asking for help, you know? And, and, and so, and and I really wanted help. I didn't want. Like I want to help, you know, I want to know what it's like to be faithful to my wife. I want to know what it's like not to have a drink to go to sleep. I want to know what it's like not to want to get high or mad or frustrated. And so I want to help in, in that area, in those areas. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so it was tough ask for that. But I had to understand that my life depended on it. And and, and so if I want this this long life of, of health and being effective and significant. I got to show my weakness. I got to expose
0: that. And so you did? Yeah, so I did. So I went through a man. I
2: went through twelve four-step recovery programs. I went through uh, marriage counseling. I've done um, all types of uh, things, just hungry trying to figure out how to overcome those things that were overtaking me.
1: Yeah, and that took a lot for you to go into these programs and do it, right? Oh, yeah, it took a lot. Yeah,
2: I mean, I'm sitting there you know, every, I repeated that 30-day chip in that Celebrate Recovery class about, about six times. I couldn't go past 30 days without looking at porn or uh, having a drink or something like that. And so, um, this, this, you know, when I first stepped out to get help, I, I, I realized how bad it was for me. Because mm-hmm. when we cover up something, I, somehow I thought I had control of it. I didn't realize how much a control I didn't have until I was being challenged.
0: Yeah. How and much so, control it had over
1: you.
2: Yeah. Right. Exactly. exactly.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And then getting into it and seeing what was going on and and actually taking ownership of all of this stuff is it was finally able. You know, was that where you were able to get past a lot of this? Move yeah. sort of forward.
2: Yeah, I did. I um, it took years. I mean, this probably started about two thousand one. Mm-hmm. I think maybe around maybe two thousand ten. I, I mean. You know, it was, it was about six, seven years in a row where I, I feel like I have quote unquote failed and cried and got up and failed and cried and got up and failed and cried and got up and, 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 got up. and one day has been in my mind. You know, I just, you know, I just, I'm just gonna, I'm not gonna die not trying. So I just kept trying and fighting. And then one day I realized, um, true, it was funny, uh, be the scenario, but I was, I, 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 I couldn't ride by looking stores scores at night. Problems. I couldn't go by certain things without feeling like an itch. Yeah. And this particular day, I was doing well. I hadn't done anything for for about 25, 30 days. And um I rode by this liquor store and and outside the liquor store with three women that I knew were dancing to this, this dance club was next door.
0: Uh-huh. I get that itch, that feeling or that, yeah, and something I what's
1: wrong with me. You know, like, I kept going. <laughs> And so, but I love that you said what's wrong with me because you didn't feel that urge, right? You've been working towards this for years. Now you finally get it, and you're like, "What's wrong with me?"
2: Yeah. So then I question question myself, like, "What about you?" So I get to the next light, and it, and it hits me that that I'm making progress. And then I was like, "Whoa!" Then something kind of kicked into me because I always felt I didn't have a gift. That was part of my frustration after football, because I didn't know what I wanted to do in life. Because some people are good at, you know. Writing or reading or hospitals or medical, yeah, cutting grass. I don't care what it is, right? So, like me, I didn't have any, but I didn't. I did that, that next light, I realized I had a gift and that was a competitive gift because I saw myself being faithful up to like two months. And something in me said, You can do three months. I was in I, this competitive nature keeping mm. with me that was kind of fighting me, right? And it came the same thing with drinking. Uh, was the same way. And I realized that I had that gift, that I was actually going to see myself defeat me.
1: That 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 became a fight. Just you and you, right? That I told was just me, really, and me. Just you and right. you. It was, that's it. it, was it was nobody else. Right. not about the alcohol, not about other women, not about strip clubs, right. not about you and you.
2: Yeah, exactly. That's what it came down to. And Ray said all the time. He said, you know, it's, it's not about wins and losses. It's about the will between you and you. That's, that's just what
1: he's saying, you know? fantastic man fantastic so you did retire yeah you got sober and everything and then you started Mm -hmm. working with men to boys right so that tell me how you got into that because now that you see you have a gift for competition you know it's you and you you get past a lot of your own demons Mm -hmm. when did you make the decision to get into what you're doing now
2: uh well I had volunteered for men to boys probably starting in like 2009 I mean the director would ask me to come in and speak, you know, as a former athlete. Mm-hmm. And um, I saw what they were doing. Um, and then eventually, uh, uh, about a year ago, he wanted to start talking about coming on his staff, uh, which I knew that that role volunteering and speaking was going to expand to being more engaging with the board. Mm-hmm. And so um, that so that's what happened. Um, I just want to do something more local. I was working for Prison Fellowship, which is more statewide. Okay. Uh, Programs in the prison, yeah. but I wanted to start doing being more effective in, in Broward County, so that's why I decided to help
1: out with Men to Boys. Okay, tell me about Men to Boys and what what you guys do there, and what what's the purpose behind okay. this organization?
2: So the, 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 the mission behind it is is mentoring. Um, we mentor young young youth, middle school to high school, ages like twelve to like nineteen. Mm-hmm. Uh, Majority of our youth come to the Department of Juvenile Justice. They're, they're, they take you know, community service hours, diversion programs. So they've already been
0: picked
1: up by the system.
2: Right. They've been picked up by the system. And yeah. so you know, they, they, they got hours and they're on house arrest or something like that. And so the judge or that junior probation officer would uh, advise them to, you know, if they thought they need a mentor or a male figure, yeah. they would send them our way. And so it's a tough group uh to, to deal with but it's it's so you know worth it. Um so our job we hold groups four nights a week, uh 530 to 730. So I facilitate two of those groups two nights a week. And we also spend time with the boys individually on the weekends. So I do stuff like help train with sports. Uh we take them to you know Dave and Busters, we take them out
1: to like the library, Barnes and nobles, things like that, robotics programs. We got a whole lot going on. So it's just about spending time with these young men to get them back on the right track. Give them some positive male influence in their life.
2: That's exactly what it is, right,
1: exactly. So you find that a lot of the the the, the boys that are in these programs, they they have no male role models, no men in their lives yeah, prior yeah, exactly. to getting into the system.
2: Exactly. I, I see a lot of them that grew up like I did. Uh, mm-hmm. it's like, it's like, it's like mentoring me all over again. Uh no 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 rep male no role model, no support for mom or a caregiver. Um and it's almost like, you know, you, you can't you can't it's like me when I said I was a kid, you know, how do you blame somebody for you know, I didn't get a chance to ask God, let me go home with that family as well to do and y'all support. Yeah. So I'm put in a situation where, you know, there's no support, no resources, and then you want me to do right. So yeah, um, but it's a lot of that going on.
1: Yeah. It's interesting. You just said you're you're mentoring yourself. So, I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. if we look deeper at that, I mean, that's really what you went through what you went through to get here now. And we talked a minute ago about the impact the coaches had on you and now who you're having on these young men.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mentor myself because it's easier that way because I see so much. I mean, it's like, man, you thought it would be different because different generations, millennials, baby boomers, and all that stuff. But it's, it's the same thing. It's the same exact thing with no support, no resources, um, and, and just, you know, and so it's just, I, I'm passionate about encouraging them because I know, I ain't going to say I know exactly what they want to hear, but I, I I get it, right? Like, You've been there. I've been there, right, right. So it, it makes it a little easy, but it's also tough at the same time, you know, because- yeah, because you know, you got you know, you've got a couple guys, like for example, um, yeah, you know, I got a guy that we mentor. Um, all I do is fight. It, you know, these gangs try to get him to be a part of a gang. And I was like that. Growing up in Coyote City, Pompano, uh, I fought every day when we had this whole gang thing established because they wanted that's why I had to fight to get out of it, right? Mm-hmm. So this kid, you know, you sit here, we mentor him, we try to get him strategy, structure, uh, understanding of you know the outcome and the consequences of what could happen if you go that route but the minute you leave you know of course he's back to reality six days you know 23 hours later he's living in that reality where well, he gets an hour with us to try to help and, and how much can you really do because he's fearing for his life so yeah. um you know that that's a tough situation
1: you ever feel like you're fighting a losing battle or, you know, pushing a rock uphill over and over and over again with some of these kids?
2: Oh, yeah, all the time, all the time. I, I just, you know, you win some and you lose some. We had five guys get in the car accident the other day. Uh, they left group, uh, you know, no doubt speeding. Somebody lost their life. Um, we talked to these guys about being reckless and driving and, and, and all this stuff about the dangers of smoking marijuana. And then all of a sudden you, you wake up, you get a call at 1 a.m. General. You know, two of them bleeding from the brain. Uh, but then you also get a call from a guy that we've been mentoring who lives in the – his brother got shot, dad's in prison. Uh, he had no hope, and now he's working at Walmart. He's a senior. He's going to graduate high school. He wants to go to college. So you, you get these stories up and down, you know. But that's what gives me strength, well, you know, when you want to think about stepping away. Think about those guys.
1: Yeah, I was going to just ask you that. What makes you stay in it? What, what, what's the passion that drives you? To continue doing this every day,
2: yeah, it's the ones that you see that 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 get it, and that want to that that believes that they can change, that they could change the situation. Um, that's that's what gives me strength.
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh, so there, yeah, <clears throat> I'm feeling that, yeah. It's the ones who really want to make that change. Yeah, and appreciate right. what you're doing for them that take the mentoring, take the advice and move themselves forward.
2: Right. And it's only one out of a few. I mean, to be honest with you, you know, you're talking maybe one out of
0: 10. Mm -hmm.
2: You know, all the nine are sitting there looking at like, yeah, whatever, right? And so, but it's that one. And so, but that's what it is. So I was always told, the whole saying is, you know, treat one like you want to treat everyone, or do for one like you wish you could do it for everyone. Yeah. So that's what it's all
1: about. Sure, the numbers don't matter. It's who you right. reach. It's who you reach, right. right? I mean, look at you. You are the one that your coach has reached, and look what you're doing. Exactly. So, this one kid that you have that's working at Walmart and wants to go to college, what's he going to do? What's that yeah, yeah. effect going to be? Oh, man, that can affect a lot. Yeah. Right? So, that's the one you got to focus on right that's there. The one
0: you focus on, right?
1: Yeah, that's the beautiful thing. You know, listen, I want to ask you about something else too, because you mentioned this to me when we talked earlier about um in the prison fellowship right so you you tell me a little bit about the prison fellowship and then i'm going to ask you about the angel tree
2: okay well i work with prison fellowship also uh, as a field director so my job there is i recruit and train volunteers i establish programs in prison um and uh I, you know recruit angel tree churches for the you know those children of inmates right angel tree, yeah
1: so mm-hmm. tell me about that so that's kids whose parents you know one parent, both parents are in prison, mm. and you guys have this Angel Tree program. And this is what you you get donations to buy gifts for the kids of inmates. Is that correct? Yeah, that's
2: correct. Right. What well, what what we do is we have the parents that are incarcerated, men and women, mm-hmm. sign their kids up through application throughout May and August of the summer months, and we get those applications back. They're all national throughout the whole country, mm-hmm. and we vet them by each state. And I'm down by zip code. And so I'm responsible from as far as like Tampa down the homestead to recruit angel tree churches. So we go out to churches and organizations to buy these kids a Christmas gift on behalf of their parents. And so that's really what it boils down to, buying a Christmas gift on behalf
1: of the parents. Tell me how that is. I mean, that that, sounds amazing and the impact has gotta be incredible.
2: Yeah, you know, when I say, hey, buy a Christmas gift, it can sound like a little thing, But when you get together at these events, these churches that, you know, we talk to and say, hey, I got 50 kids in your community that lives within a five-mile radius who got a parent in prison. Uh, We can bring them here on December 15th at 3 o'clock. We can give them that gift. And when you bring those kids in, that sometimes is the only gift they get. One. Two is it brings, it's emotional for them because their mom or dad is incarcerated and actually went through uh, the length of this to get them a gift. Uh, and then the caregiver, sometimes grandma, aunt, whoever the kids live with, uh, really appreciates it because it just shows them that their that parents, somebody cares about them. Uh, and so it, it's a phenomenal thing. And I also host industry camps with the kids as well, sports camps. So we try to engage those kids as much as possible to not, one, family reconciliation, but also not allow them to follow the same path as the parents.
1: Right. Get right. them involved in activities. Get them doing something. Giving them that support and that mentoring right. that they need too. Exactly. So, how, I mean, I'm I'm feeling the impact that it makes not only on the kids, but what about on the parent that's incarcerated?
2: Uh, well, it makes a big difference for them too because most of the parents, again, well, at least the ones I've come across, like the thousands of them, yeah, uh, will raise with you know no support, no this, no that. You know, a lot of them just made a bad decision, right? Uh, but it does wonders for them because it shows. Their child that they're thinking about them because the child when they come visit them or writes them they they always talking about the gift and so when I go back to like the prison I like interview or do a, a program somebody always run me down hey man thanks for sending my child that gift man that means so much man they just love that they did and like that and it makes it brings such a joy to them and yeah. it creates a better community in prison you know so you know the stabbings you know the fights all that stuff just by having something that builds morale. And, they're, you know, really
1: helps out. Sure, and showing that people care, right? There are people right, sure. out there that really do give a shit, right?
2: Yeah, exactly, right, right. Because a lot of them can't sign their kid up if they get in the fight. You know, it's a privilege uh-huh. inside a prison system. Right. So you'd be amazed at how many avoid fights or violence or anything because they want to sign the child to get a Christmas gift.
1: Fantastic, man. Beautiful. Yeah. Just beautiful. Now, were you a, an Angel Tree recipient when you're – that was in prison or no? Okay, so you hadn't experienced this, this was... No, I hadn't experienced this at all. This was... Okay, yeah. so this wasn't like, you know, something that you had gotten involved in because you had the same experience, okay.
2: Right, yeah. Got it. I yeah. wish I would have, it'll be my
1: only gift. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah, yeah. So there were Christmases where you got nothing?
2: Yeah, yeah, it's a whole lot of Christmases, yeah.
1: So how does it feel being on this end now, being able to bring this to these kids?
2: Oh man, it's a joy that's indescribable. I mean to see it. You know, I, I see the look that I would have had on my face.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, it's like me raising my sons. You know, I, I see the look of what it looks like to have a dad. You know, and so uh, it's, it's I, I enjoy that more than if I would have had. to Be honest with you, I, I like living on this side.
1: Yeah, the, the giving side. Yeah, the giving side, right? Sure. Yeah, I love on this side. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of impact on the giving side isn't there oh, yeah, right giving the heart giving yeah. love and everything else right. exactly so, so tell me about your your kids i mean and how your how your childhood has affected how you're ra- and then also the mentorship that you've got with these other you know organizations that you work with and seeing these other kids how has that affected how you're raising your own children
2: uh well I, it made me more personable um okay. my i mean i I really find time to talk to them and I mean I mean they're older now it's twenty and seventeen was it seventeenth a senior in high school, but when they were younger, um I was really intentional on being their face to face, you know being that guy, and so I mean, like if we took a trip to Tallahassee, we take the longest route just so we can talk. 27, all the way down. We spent some time together, right? Yeah, right. So we spent time together. So it really helped me engage. And they're like, they're like my best friends outside of being my sons. Um, it, it, it affected me in a lot of ways, too, because um, I still, I still, you know, when I was younger, I, I struggled with being affectionate with my kids mm-hmm. because I didn't know what affection was like. I, mean, I didn't tell my oldest son, I love you, till he was about 10. And uh, I didn't know how to formulate those words. And so I still struggle with that, even to this day, because, again, that was in my DNA. My makeup was, uh, you know, you got to be tough. You don't show weakness and, you know, all that stuff. And so that's part of my needing help is being affectionate uh, to them, um, learning how to hug on them and give them a father's kiss and all that stuff. But um, so, but yeah, so I, I'm still growing in that area, but I, I made sure I was intentional with teaching and giving them who I was and who I am. So they know all about my past and what I've been through. And um, I always told them I would share my weakness and not my strengths, because my weakness is what made me who I am.
1: Amen, tell me more about that. Because that, that you know, listen, we we, we talk about, for us, we have the um, sacred seven core values, and I always sent you a copy of them. And that that Amen. first one that we have is courage, right? Courage is the, um, the foundation of all of them. And then after that comes honesty. Mm. So what you're saying is, you know, sharing your fears, sharing your failures with your sons, that takes a tremendous amount of courage to be that honest. So tell me how, what that was like when you had these conversations with them.
2: Yeah, it was, um, it was more like, you know, I'm not sure how they're going to receive it. Like when they were older, um, like my oldest son was, I think he was about 14. You know, we got in a conversation about sex and all that stuff. And, uh, just talking about what where I felt as a kid and how I was, even getting married to that mom, how I wasn't ready, but I used that as an opportunity to just get married to build a team around me, a selfishness. um, yeah. and 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 so my kids, to be honest with you, they receive it, um, they received it as a sign of strength from me by telling them my weakness, but I had alcohol weakness, or my weakness with you know sex all that, um, my weakness and just being um, like, feel like I'm not smart enough. Right. Uh, I feel like I'm intimidated of educated people. I used to tell them about that. And so um, I just, but I wanted them to know who I was. And I think what happened with me, my son was about 11 and he was at a middle school thing. And they asked these kids who they wanted to be like growing up and everybody said everything else, but my son said he wanted to be like his father. And so, and like it hit me, and everybody was like, Look at me smile, I'm smiling back. But I'm also saying, My son don't even know me. Like at that time, I was kind of still hiding things, struggling with things.
1: You were still hiding yeah. and struggling, you said?
2: Yeah, because I was like hide when I, when I drink or uh, I, was, I was hiding um, so I, it, You know, I just my thoughts towards like pornography. Um, I, I was hiding those types of things. Not that he wouldn't know it, but what, it was, it was bodily because I was struggling so much mentally. And dealing with alcohol that I, I I was like he wants to be like me, but he doesn't know who I really am, yeah, and so I made it a point when he was about thirteen, so i I carried that for a while to tell him my struggles, yeah, and so um I shared that with him vividly and um and it helped him too because it really gave him an understanding of what he was struggling with, and he didn't and we didn't talk about you know everybody deals with something right even middle
1: schools struggle with
2: sex, right but, sure. He just, uh, yeah, so it helped him also.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So how'd that feel when you finally came, told him the truth, you were honest with him and open, vulnerable, all of that?
2: Yeah, it it felt like a relief. Um, It did feel like a relief. I think I told him, I said, now somebody knows who I am at my funeral. (laughs) You know, I (laughs) told him that because, uh, you know, I felt like I was going to be a hypocrite at my funeral, you know, and so... Uh, I shared with him, you know, and so it just it felt like weight was lifted on me. I even shared with times I was unfaithful to his mom because, um, you know, she would, you know, she would, she sometimes she get upset. She could act out with that nigga here or something. Yeah. And so, um, but I, but he, he told me, he said, "Pop, you know, if I can forgive you, I'm sure she can too." You know, mm-hmm. and uh, but it, it helped me understand that, you know, this is who I am, and
0: he, and he still looks up to. Me.
1: Yeah, of course, because now, I mean, there's even more to look up to now, right, Tyrus? I mean, here's a guy who's coming, had the courage to be honest with him. Now you're living in integrity because you're the same guy outwardly as you are inwardly, and and you're, you're not hiding anything anymore. Right. Right? Exactly. So, you know, what's not to love and respect more about that? Exactly, right. You know, and I think for me, I know we find that kids are way more intuitive than we give them credit for. Oh, yeah. Way right? So, you're, you know, here we are. We could think, oh, I'm hiding this. He doesn't know about all my shit. <laughs> we do, and then it becomes worse because they don't see that honesty and integrity in, in their father.
2: Exactly. Exactly. Right. It becomes worse.
1: Yeah. And that, that's,
2: that was my one of my fears is that if I don't man up and, and share with them who I really am, one, I feel it's going to affect them as men when, when they grow up because, I think they're gonna struggle with similar issues. If it's not that, it's something, right?
0: Yeah. And
2: so, um, uh, to, to, see, to hear about me fighting is gonna help them fight. And two, if they find out down the road that I was a hypocrite or a liar, it's gonna bring some tension between us.
1: Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. yeah. he's gonna know it, right? And it's just gonna make things worse. So make it worse, right? You know, um. I want to ask you, uh, now, do your, do your kids know? I mean, obviously, they know about your past. I mean, how much contact do they have with your family and the relatives?
0: Uh, well, my
2: mom, they talk to long all the time. Okay. Uh, yeah, and my mom. But my siblings, they probably see maybe like three, four times a year holidays. They Yeah, but they, they, they know all of them. I mean, they, they, they see where they live. Mm-hmm. My sister's still on drugs. I mean, my brother lives in, you know. And uh they see the, the environment they always you know they they question me you know how do you why are you so different you know and, and he mm-hmm. escape from the passion of wanting to be different uh yeah. but so they kind of they,
0: they speak to them yeah,
1: yeah, I mean, I was going to say what well, the positive aspect of that is they they you know again, it's a more complete picture of their dad, and mm-hmm. you were able to work your way out of right that. right, they see that right yeah mm-hmm. um. Yeah, because there's, you know, it's a thing that you said, and I want to hear when you said, what, what hurts me the most is when you go back to your old community and see your friends walking around, their pants hanging down, selling drugs, they look at you and say, you think you're better than us. Mm. So what, what is, tell me about that, that feeling about, you know, having to go back and, and Get that because I mean listen, we all go through that. As we grow right. in our lives and become who we are meant to be, mm-hmm. there are always going to be those others who didn't live up to their potential and they're going to try and drag you down. Yeah. So yeah. how has that experience been for you?
2: Yeah, it's been a tough experience because um I, I got a lot of love for the kids that grew up in a similar neighborhood, my neighborhood that I grew up in. Um and and, and when I go back you know, you figure that you know these guys wouldn't treat you any different. Um, it and actually it kind of hurts when you see guys that you grew up with that turn their back on you when you come on the park, and walk the other way,
0: that mm-hmm. try
2: not to look at you. Um, and I I know what it is. A lot of it's embarrassment from their part because they 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 didn't, you know, they decided to take that route. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. so I shouldn't be embarrassed about what I've tried to do. Um, but it does. Bother me in a way because, you know, I'm there in in love and not to
1: show anything else that I think I'm better than anybody else. Right. So, um, you're there the support, it. to be there for them, to show right. that, you know, you can make it be an example, those kind of things.
2: Right. E- even, even try to be an example to the kids where you are. I mean, you don't have to have it all together, you know, but you still can be an example to the youth. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so that, you know,
0: that's where it's at.
1: <laughs> yeah, I feel that I'm yeah. also feeling a little bit of it like you know when you, when you were younger and you were angry when you'd see these these kids that had what you didn't have right you had that jealousy right. and anger so now you can feel that part of them that's looking at you coming back that jealousy and anger that they have right
2: yeah exactly so so I, that's, that's what I'm saying it, it, I I, knew, I see it, before it ends. right and, and it hurts yeah
1: yeah hurts tell me how it hurts
2: well because the thing is um, my heart is different you know, is my, my thought is different. My my mindset is different. You know, I, I I'm not that angry guy. I'm not that jealous guy. You know what I mean? So like, um, you know, you know, you know, my grandfather would often say, you know, I can't tell you what to do, but I can tell you what you're doing is not working. You know what I mean? Like, so it's more one of those things of you you, you know, you can't give up hope on that you're not worth anything because you could be worth something to these young men out here. So that's that's what I try to get across to guys from my generation that feel some kind of way about me. But I
1: don't know if that would ever happen. Yeah, that, that is some fantastic advice from your grandfather right there.
2: Yeah. He wasn't the smartest guy, but he he he, he had a little wisdom. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, I got I to gotta say, yeah, that's a great way yeah. to put it, man. The wisdom is everything, though, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it's everything. Yeah, right, right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, I'm going to end on this with you because – um you know, you were talking about just being angry um and, and, and not having that in your heart anymore. And you had said um before that you can be angry all you want, but at the end of your life, people will just remember you as an angry man. Mm. Or you can leave a legacy. Mm. And so for you, Tyrus, what what's the legacy that you want to leave after you're gone? Mm.
0: Uh wow. Uh, yeah,
2: that, that that quote, um, my legacy is. You know, I've always, um, you know, there, there's, there's, you know, we we can look at this world or we can look at life and we can say, you know, it's good, it's bad, it's evil and good, however you want to determine it. Mm-hmm. Um, my legacy, I just want to be a part of something that was, that was good. I want to be a part of something that kept good moving. I got a short window of life. I think we all do, at, you know, 80 years at best. Mm-hmm. And, you know, here I am winding down, probably about a good 20 left. And so I'm thinking to myself, and what can I do to affect, small window of time that I got left and so um the legs that I love to leave is how do I push goodness into the next generation how do I do what I can to seeds to push that to keep that going uh doing my little short window of time of life so that's that's really all I live for is how can I move that window in
1: my part right get as many of those young men out of the situation that you were in and into yeah. the situation that you're in now
2: exactly right and hopefully they do the same thing
1: going forward. Yeah, that's the ripple effect he's talking about. His impact is making ripples in that community and leaving a legacy where these men keep passing that mentorship and guidance on down through the generations. And I can feel those ripples spreading out wider and wider, changing lives the way McClouds was changed. Just by having a few good, strong men guide him and set him on the right path, believing in his talents and believing in his greatness. Now, this is something we don't celebrate enough. The power of men helping and guiding other men. And I applaud McLeod for his dedication and his devotion to pass that on. It comes from courage, and it comes from commitment, and from duty, and from love. And that is truly heroic. So now I want to know what you got out of Tyrus McLeod's story. As always, you can let me know. Social links are on our website wlkhpodcast.com. Click on them, leave me a comment. Let me know what uh, you think about this week's episode. And also you can join the warriors, lovers, kings and heroes group on Facebook. Always like I always ask you, make sure to share this show with men. You know, we're going to get some value out of it. All right. So please pass that on. I want to thank Tyrus McLeod for joining us today for being real and raw and honest and telling us the story of his journey to modern manhood. And I want to thank you for listening to Eric Rogel Talks with Warriors, Lovers, Kings, and Heroes today. I'm Eric Rogell, and I'm honored to be with you, to be your brother by your side on your hero's journey. I'll talk to you next week.